Did I break it? Not yet. Oh. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Appa Similani, uh, director of Iranian Studies program here. Welcome to uh, our event tonight. Uh, let me say uh, one word about our next event and uh, one word about our last event that is not in this sheet. Uh, if you have this sheet, it is you can pick it up on the way out. Uh, and before I forget, those who uh, are students, uh, there's a sign-up sheet here. Please sign up before you go. Uh, although you don't have to, I, I, I recognize you, but if you sign up, it's easier to uh, keep uh, long-term track of it. Uh, on May 25th, uh, we have uh, Dr. Shirvani uh, from uh, World Bank. is going to be talking about Iran and the World Bank awaiting the gold rush. Uh, after that, Huh? The speaker is not working. Uh, we don't have a speaker. Okay. I just have to project. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very good, huh? We can set it up. Uh, no, I don't think we need that. I, I, I can just speak a little louder. Uh, and uh, uh, on May 30th, uh, I'll tell you that one as well. Uh, on May 30th, uh, we have uh, Vali Mahluji coming from uh, London. He has been doing uh, remarkable work on sort of... Uh, doing an archaeology of Festival Shiraz, collecting all that we know about Festival Shiraz. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's curated a couple of shows in London, and uh, he's coming here to essentially talk about that very important uh, cultural event uh, in the last decade of the Shah's period. We have added one program, uh, one, uh, program to this list. Uh, it's the last program of our quarter. Uh, it is by Dr. Mohsine Meskaran, who is now an uh, economist uh, working uh, as uh, a research fellow uh, as part of the Iranian Studies Program. We have a project here called Iran 2040 Project, uh, and uh, Dr. Mescaran is one of the people working on it. I strongly urge you to go on our website and see the articles that they have written. They now have three articles that they have written, uh, and one of them is on this issue of water and uh, water supply and uh, cultivable land in Iran. Um, they've done a remarkable job of doing the satellite imaging of every inch of farmable land in Iran and every drop of water. And I've mapped it out and can tell you with some precision how much Iran can actually, how many people Iran can actually feed and whether Iran actually has the capacity to feed 150 million people, as uh, Mr. Khamenei uh, hopes. <clears throat> so these are the rest of our events. If you are not on our mailing list, uh, please uh, sign. Uh, it is uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, our guest uh, tonight, uh, uh, Professor Nagibi, Niman Nagibi. She is the chair of the English department uh, at uh, Ryerson University, if I spell uh, it's uh, one of the major universities. Uh, it says in the, it's the most thriving university. I was reading their website in the heart of Toronto. 
and the English department is a fairly substantial English department. She is the chair of the uh, program. She was educated in Canada. Uh, her area of expertise has been uh, the question of women, uh, women's literature, uh, colonial discourse, uh, diasporatic uh, discourse. Um, this is essentially the second book that she has uh, published, both of them with uh, University of Minnesota Press, that is truly in the field of cultural studies, one of the preeminent uh, university presses for this specific area, cultural studies, women's studies, critical uh, theory. Uh, and the subject of her talk today is uh, the, uh, representation of women's lives in uh, Iranian women's lives in diaspora, whether it is in uh, memoir, whether it's in autobiography, whether it is in documentaries, or whether it is in Facebook and social media. Uh, in spite of all the efforts by the Iranian regime to force women to play their traditional family role, Iranian women have been at the forefront, both inside Iran and outside Iran, creatively, uh, uh, scientifically, uh, entrepreneurially, and she is focusing on their rather remarkable output in the uh, uh, U.S. particularly, in English languages uh, particularly. Uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, uh, reading it. Uh, I strongly uh, urge you to read it. Uh, it is uh, uh, a very uh, detailed, erudite, uh, precise uh, examination of some of the more remarkable works that have become very popular in Western uh, uh, in the U.S., from uh, Azar and Afisi's uh, work, Reading Lolita, to other memoirs, to Satrapi's work, about which she has uh, written. She has agreed to kindly sign books at the end, so there are books uh, available, and uh, I strongly urge you to avail yourself of this wonderful opportunity. And I have to uh, uh, end by thanking my dear friend uh, Mehdiya Safipur, who first kindly sent me a copy of the book to read, and I read it, and uh, I said we have to have uh, uh, this remarkable scholar here. So please, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Miloni, for that very very generous uh, introduction. Thank you so much. Uh, it's such an honor for me to be here, uh, and I would like to express my uh, deep uh, appreciation to the Stanford Iranian Studies Program and to Dr. Abbas Milani, a renowned scholar uh, and the author of a wonderful memoir himself, actually, uh, for this generous invitation. I'm grateful also to Roma Parhat. I just realized I should stand next to the recording. Right? Um, I'm grateful also to Roma Parhad and Franco Erico um, for facil facilitating my visit here and for being so helpful with all of the administrative details. Um, now, I have to confess that uh, I've been in denial about the fact that I need reading glasses. And I think this is now the time when I have to accept the fact that I need to wear them. So excuse me a moment. So uh, it is a real privilege uh, to have this opportunity to speak with you about my book, Women Write Iran, Nostalgia and Human Rights from the Diaspora. What I plan to do this evening is to offer a general overview of my arguments in the book and to give you a sense of how I work with these various theories of autobiography, life writing, nostalgia, and human rights. 
So I'm going to spend the first half of this talk speaking about life writing and nostalgia, and then in the second half of the talk, I'll shift my focus to uh, testimonial writing and prison narratives. In structuring my talk in this way, I'm hoping you'll get a sense of the book as a whole. As Farzane Miloni has uh, famously pointed out uh, in her now canonical book uh, in Iranian studies, Fails in Words, traditionally, the genre of autobiography um, was not popular in an Iranian cultural context, particularly for women, uh, because this genre of public self-disclosure um, was seen as a form of, uh, a a form of, sort of metaphorical unveiling um, that challenged the gendered notion of sham which she uh, defined as a combination of charm and shame, which is very specific to this ideal, modest Iranian woman. As uh, Milani has uh, herself noted, since the late 1990s, however, a growing number of Iranian women outside of Iran are turning to the genre of autobiography to narrate their personal experiences of life in post-revolutionary Iran and in the diaspora. This trend towards life writing and public disclosures needs to be understood, it seems to me, as part of the literary uh, phenomenon that autobiography critics have called uh, the memoir boom, or the age of memoir. Notable for me was how these diasporic Iranian memoirs were received by scholars who work on Iranian literature and culture. And I have to tell you, it was not at all positive. Um, Some critiqued what they identified as an imperialist um, thrust to these memoirs. Others went further and made direct connections between neoconservative institutions in the United States and specific um, memoirists. Uh, In large part, though, I think that the uh, critiques against diasporic Iranian memoirs seems to come from a historical suspicion of the genre of uh, memoir itself. I was wondering if it's upside down, but it's not. Um, So Thomas Kauser, who's a theorist of memoir, um, has written about this prejudice. um, And he said, until quite recently, memoir was minor and autobiography major. Memoir subliterary and autobiography literary. Memoir shallow and autobiography deep. Memoir marginal and autobiography canonical. So part of the prejudice against the genre of the memoir versus the autobiography seems to be a sense that autobiography offers a long retrospective lens uh, on a life usually of a known personality, usually male. and. It connotes a thoughtfulness uh, and an ability to think critically that the memoir, with its focus on a shorter period of time or a singular event in a person's life, does not. The memoir tends to be understood as more emotional and therefore less reliable in its recording of events than an autobiography which is seen as more rational, balanced portrayal of a person's life. So for me, Iranian memoirs are particularly interesting in their mediation of the diasporic experience through the author's memories of pre-revolutionary Iran, thus placing the concepts of memory and nostalgia and questions of testimony and witness at the heart of these narratives. These memoirs are deeply emotional. They are deeply affecting in the stories that they tell. While some critics have been inclined to discredit them for being too emotional, my interest lies precisely in their emotional and affective qualities. I'm curious about the kinds of responses uh, these memoirs generate or invite. What do expressions of nostalgia, empathy, and compassion do? How do they circulate, and what do they demand of us as readers? 
In my time today, I will focus first on the specter of revolution in these memoirs, as it really is at the heart of so many of these nostalgic narratives. And then I'll move on to talk about testimony. Now, I should also say that while the 1980s saw a smattering of autobiographical writings by, um, uh, by former members of the um, monarchy or the aristocracy, um, many of these stories were focused on uh, the specificity of the individual's narrative. Um, they traced the end of a particular era of you know, privilege and power and so on, and told the story of the author's perseverance in the diaspora. But there's been a shift, right? So, and I think that really started in, late, in the late 1990s. So Tara Bahrampur's uh, To See and See Again, um, A Life in Iran and America, and Gelara Asoyesh's Saffron Sky, A Life Between Iran and America, were the first texts by a generation of authors whose childhood was interrupted by the violence of revolution. This is the generation of Iranian youth, sometimes referred to as the burnt generation. Too young to have participated in the events of the revolution, they were nevertheless deeply affected by it. Like Majon Satafi's uh, child avatar in her graphic narrative, Persepolis, <coughs> Persepolis 1 and 2, um, this generation served as witnesses to the unfolding of history, but without the ability to engage in any meaningful way with the events that transpired. In other words, history happened to this generation and without their input. This was a generation that existed on the margins of revolution, deeply affected by it, but unable to have a voice. So these texts serve to illustrate the connections I'm making between autobiographical disclosures and nostalgia, and the ways in which these converge in the diasporic Iranian context. I'm interested in the pull of nostalgia and the desire for return in autobiographical narratives, even as this desire for return home has at times placed the author in a somewhat uh, uh, perilous position, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. To See and See Again <clears throat> and Saffron Sky chronicles the narrator's hyphenated lives as they move between Iran and America in the aftermath of the 1979 revolution. These autobiographies, published in 1999, are the first among a now substantial corpus of texts by a generation of diasporic Iranian women, many of whom experienced the 79 revolution in uh, pre or early adolescence and then immigrated to the West with their families. So, this particular wave of Iranian memoirs um, what is produced by authors whose childhood was uh, interrupted. Um, thus, the predominant sentiment in these texts, nostalgia for a lost and idealized childhood, is deeply bound up with nostalgia for a lost pre-revolutionary nation. These authors pen nostalgic reflections of their past, inflected with a keen longing for home. For diasporic writers, unlike for travel writers, it's the return that's the fantasy, not the departure. For them, there is little romance in being elsewhere. These life narratives emphasize the importance of memory and of a careful remembering, and I'm using this in the dual sense um, of uh, recall and piecing together, right? of personal stories of families and friends that have remained half-told, lost in that frenzied shuffle between nations, between an Iran of their past and a North America or Europe of their future. Stressing the feelings of loss that mark the condition of the exilic diasporic subject, 
Bahrampur's memoir encapsulates the anxieties of cultural, emotional, and geographical displacement reflected in the life narratives produced by Iranian women in the diaspora. Here's a quote um, <clears throat> that I really like, that had a really profound effect on me, um, and that illustrates quite succinctly the diasporic anxiety about which I've been speaking. So Bahrampur says, in Iran, your place becomes empty when you leave and stays empty as long as you are away. But what if the one who leaves forgets about his empty place? What if by living so long in America or England or France, he starts to, be, be, he starts to become part of those countries and no longer remembers his original home? The Iranian expression, your place is empty, implies that the memory of a person remains alive in the hearts of those left behind and that the exilic subject can always find and reclaim her place again upon her return home. But the anxieties that are part of the diasporic condition lead Bahrampur to wonder what might happen if she forgets the sounds, the smells, the rhythm of life in her home country, and through this forgetting, lose a piece of her identity, herself. What happens to a person who, by force of historical events, leaves her home never again to return? How does she preserve the memory of her personal and cultural history while managing to navigate a present reality, uh, a new life in a foreign land? These are the questions that haunt the diasporic subject and that emerge in various ways in autobiographical texts by diasporic Iranians. Scholars who work on nostalgia and memory have noted that historically, nostalgia was a condition uh, diagnosed as a debilitating medical disease. Nostalgia has thus tended historically to be regarded in negative terms. Initially viewed as a curable medical ailment, it was later considered to be uh, a form of psychological trauma. Once it was no longer dis uh, diagnosed as a medical and therefore treatable condition, nostalgia was recast in cultural and literary contexts as an emotional wound. In popular discourse, nostalgia is often seen as a sentimental indulgence, right, which market-savvy entrepreneurs have easily attached to consumer goods. These negative connotations have contributed to a view of nostalgia as implying movement backward. But as Svetlana Boym has argued, nostalgia is as much about projecting a future past as it is about claiming an irretrievable past. In other words, nostalgic remembrances of pre-revolutionary Iran do not simply amount to mourning a lost Iran or a past life. They are also an expression of mourning for one's future self that might have been. In the nostalgic desire to reclaim an irretrievable place, Iran, and irretrievable time, pre-1979, lies an articulated grief for a future that could have been. At the level of the individual nostalgic, what this means is that the desire for another place and another time involves a mourning for that imagined future self, who the diasporic subject imagines herself to have become had the traumatic event, in this case the revolution, not taken place. Azadeh Moabini's relationship to Iran, as she describes it first in Lipstick Jihad and then in Honeymoon in Tehran, is, as in the case of other memoirists, a nostalgic one. Keenly aware um, that her desire for Iran is shaped and mediated through what she repeatedly refers to as the dusty memories of her diasporic family and friends, 
Mauveni's nostalgia for Iran can be understood through Marianne Hirsch's concept of post-memory, a memory passed down through generations. While Mauveni's lipstick jihad, much like Bahram Purstisi and see again, is interwoven with nostalgic memories of Iran, Mauveni's text is particularly interesting since her longing for home precedes her visit to the country. And she sees Iran for the first time at age five. Her visit re-cements her nostalgia for an Iran mediated through the, parents, through the memories of her parents' generation and their yearning for an elusive homeland. Mauveni thus inherits a powerful longing for an idealized pre-revolutionary Iran through the force of her parents' nostalgia. This feeling of longing for a home that many have never themselves seen has been usefully explained by Jennifer Delisle. Did I? Oh, sorry, these were the covers of Mauveni's text. Um, and this is the quote from Jennifer Delisle. She uh, explains it uh, as genealogical nostalgia, which she defines as follows. The affective drive to uncover, preserve, and record our family history and homeland this notion of feeling a place in our bones despite never having seen it. The painful longing to return home defines and shapes the diasporic existence, whether the object of desire is an actual physical location where a, parent, a person once resided, or whether it is simply a place known and felt only through the imagination, since the nostalgia they feel is an inherited one from previous generations. Particularly eloquent on the subject of nostalgia, Moaveni describes with poignancy the emotional effects of living at a remove from one's country of origin. Recognizing that she herself carries this burden of inherited nostalgia, Moaveni decides to return to the home of her imagination and to confront her feelings in the very place that serves as the object of her nostalgia. Upon her arrival in Iran, Moaveni relishes the warm welcome she receives from her family and describes with powerful emotion the experience of sitting in her grandfather's kitchen. <clears throat> the kitchen smelt like summer, and I sat on a bar stool at the island in the center, enchanted with the abundance and the knowledge that generations of my ancestors had eaten this precise sort of apple, exactly those peaches. In this moving description of her reconnection with a personal as well as a national cultural history that until now had only existed at, as part of a carefully preserved family lore, Moavini invokes and reclaims her ancestral connections to Iran. Despite her sensitive descriptions of how nostalgia shapes the life and emotions of the diasporic subject, Moavini is at times quite hard on diasporic Iranians and their nostalgic relationship to an Iran to which they will not or cannot return. However perceptive her description of the stresses and tensions of diasporic life, what also emerges in her memoir is her at times reproachful view of diasporic Iranians whom she characterizes as guarding stale memories of a pre-revolutionary Iran and indulging their nostalgia for an Iran that exists only in their imagination. For Moaveni then, nostalgia is for the most part quite negative. It encourages an ossified relationship with the country of origin and hinders a complex and comprehensive understanding and engagement with the country's contemporary politics, society, and culture. Indeed, much of Lipstick Jihad is preoccupied with the subject of nostalgia, with which Moavini connects to the topic of loyalty, loyalty to one's origins and to one's place of birth. 
turning a critical lens on herself, her aunt, and her cousin, who all went to Iran under the spell of nostalgia for an Iran about which they all fantasized. She writes, all of us, Khaleh Zahra, Kimya, and I, had arrived in Tehran as Iranians of the imagination. We had Iranian identities, but they were formed by our memories and the Farsi-speaking parts of our soul. But we could not navigate the Tehran of today or share in the collective consciousness of the Iranians who never left. <clears throat> Bound up with the politics of Iranian diaspora and nostalgia is thus the question of loyalty. Those who left Iran during or shortly after the revolution are seen as having abandoned the nation in the face of adversity. Those who stayed behind suffered through the immediate and bloody aftermath of the post-revolutionary period and the eight-year Iran-Iraq war. So much has happened to the country and to its inhabitants post-1979 that those who left the country and who live abroad are depicted as incapable of understanding the realities of uh, contemporary Iran. So one of the unsettling effects of this position, then, is the question of authenticity. Those who stayed behind and suffered through the war and the policies of the Islamic Republic are the real Iranians. Those who went abroad are the so-called Iranians of the imagination. For Moaveni, this question of authenticity and belonging um, and uh, of authentic and inauthentic Iranianness is the personal conflict with which she struggles continuously in terms of her own relationship to Iran and it's one that surfaces repeatedly in both of her memoirs. In her second memoir, Moaveni recounts her decision to live, work, marry, and have a child in Iran. Unlike her first memoir, Honeymoon in Tehran recalibrates Moaveni's identity as perhaps more legitimately Iranian. Her successful attempt to return offers her the possibility of accessing an authentic Iranianness no longer available to the nostalgic Iranians living um, abroad. Her return, however, is short-lived. Eventually, she's forced to leave Iran, this time with her husband and small child, as it becomes increasingly obvious that she can no longer work safely uh, as a journalist in Iran. Their decision to leave is intensely conflicted and uh, prompts Moaveni to raise once again the implied connection between a diasporic life and disloyalty to one's country of birth. Indeed, Arash and I were joining the great stream of educated Iranians who each year abandoned, yes, abandoned their country for better jobs and better futures abroad. <clears throat> Moaveni's uh, feelings of guilt over her decision to leave Iran are shared by many diasporics and are reflected in the wave of memoirs over the past two decades. At the heart of many of these texts lies the author's struggle with her um, distance from Iran her desire to be relevant to the country's ongoing political concerns and an anxiety that this distance disqualifies her in having a stake in the future direction of the nation. Perhaps it is this powerful affective combination of nostalgia and guilt that explains why, over the past two decades, a notable number of diasporic Iranian journalists like Moaveni decided to relocate to Iran. Following the siren song of the promise of home and belonging, Numerous diasporic journalists have returned to their country of origin, but then found themselves forced to flee in the face of threats to their personal safety, as in the case of Moaveni herself. <clears throat> or in the case of Human Majd, whose memoir, um, The Ministry of Guidance, invites you to not stay. I really like that title. <laughs> um, chronicles ex his experience of moving to Iran for a year with his American wife and infant son. 
While he is drawn there by the magnetic pull of nostalgia, he is obliged to return to America for his own and his family's safety. In more dire cases, journalist authors such as Roxana Saberi, Mazyar Bahori, and Jason Ezoyan have gone to Iran, motivated by nostalgic reimaginings of their relationship to their native country, and perhaps to exchange their post-memory of Iran for their own lived experiences. All three found themselves imprisoned as a result. This compulsion by diasporic writers to rediscover a personal history and forge connections with the lost homeland dovetails with the desire to not only reclaim their past connection, but also to create a legitimate space from within which they could engage with the quotidian affairs of their native land. Nostalgia, then, is complicated. At once myopic in its focus on personal experiences and memories, it is also driven by an intense longing to reconnect, to legitimize one's continuing relevance to the political and social concerns of one's country of origin. Nostalgia can also be a productive emotion. Nostalgic memories can transform the act of turning back to the past into opportunities for future engagement. The creative process of remembering, again in that dual sense um, of recall and piecing together, allows the diasporic writer to indulge in her nostalgic memories of the past, but it also forces her to come to terms with Iran in the historical present. I'm just going to take a sip of water. <clears throat> Excuse me. So having raised the specter of prison narratives a moment ago, this is perhaps a good moment to shift my discussion um, to the second half of my talk, which is on prison narratives. So I'll begin this uh, part of the talk with this quote from Elaine Scarry, from her essay, The Difficulty of Imagining Other People. And she says, the human capacity to injure other people has always been much greater than its ability to imagine other people. Or perhaps we should say the human capacity to injure other people is very great, precisely because our capacity to imagine other people is very small. I use this quotation from Elaine Scarry's powerful essay on the limits of human empathy and the seemingly limitless capacity for human cruelty as a starting point to this discussion of prison narratives as it focuses our attention on how suffering is expressed in narrative. And it requires us to think about how we read narratives of suffering. How can we, as privileged readers, bear witness to the traumatic experiences endured by political prisoners in a meaningful way, in a way that goes beyond merely making sympathetic noises uh, in the face of another's suffering? How can we, as readers located in the West, read and engage with narratives of violence, torture, imprisonment, and suffering particularly when these narratives depict experiences in cultural uh, and national locations with which the West has a compromised and often vexed relationship. Beginning with Marina Nemat's Prisoner of Tehran, 2007 saw the proliferation of diasporic Iranian women's prison narratives written in English. Other prison narratives published in 2007 include Camellia Intakhabi Fard's Camellia, Save Yourself by Telling the Truth, and the collection We Live to Tell, political prison memoirs of Iranian women. These were followed by Zahra Qahramani's My Life as a Traitor, Hale Esvalyori's My Prison, My Home, One Woman's Story of Captivity in Iran, Roxana Sabedi's Between Two Worlds, My Life and Captivity in Iran, and most recently, Shahla Talibi's Ghosts of Revolution, Rekindled Memories of Imprisonment in Iran. 
Diasporic Iranian prison narratives are part of a wave of testimonial literatures that foreground suffering, mobilizing what Jillian Whitlock has called a rights discourse that impels the reader to take up a compassionate stance. The emotive power of humanitarian narratives is particularly significant for generating ethical and moral responses to the suffering body. However, as Joseph Slaughter and Sophia McClellan have cautioned, we live in an era when the language of human rights is everywhere, and therefore nowhere, because it has become a tool wielded by both the left and the right to serve their own political agendas. Cultural critics, then, need to engage with the question of humanitarianism and human rights while remaining vigilant against the possible emptying out of the meaning and the power of such terms as human rights or social justice. The proliferation of humanitarian narratives through the genre of the diasporic Iranian prison memoir is critical for engendering Western sympathy for the suffering Iranian subject. It's, it is worth examining which narratives have a wider reach. Why do some stories engender more sympathy than others? Um, one answer, I think, could be that readers respond to what is familiar to them. So Julie Rack has made this argument uh, about the appeal of genre. There's a, a, a familiarity and a comfort in repetition. So I suggest that some of the more popular prison narratives deploy recognizable narrative codes and genres that appeal to a wider audience, such as, for example, the captivity narrative or the romance novel. North America is where the captivity genre originated, and it can be traced back to early modern Western, uh, to an early modern Western literary tradition that reflects Western anxieties about colonial uh, exploration and exploit exploitation. Captivity narratives usually involve a physical, usually sexualized threat uh, of the male native other to the vulnerable American or British uh, female body. This popular genre with roots in uh, 17th century New World <coughs> contact narratives experienced a resurge in popularity with Betty Mahmoudi's Not Without My Daughter, published in 1987, as both Farzana Miloni and Gillian Whitlock have observed. The popularity of prison, uh, prison memoirs, such as Neymat's Prisoner of Tehran, Qahramani's My Life as a Traitor, and to a lesser extent, Entechabi Fard's Camellia, can be in part attributed to the fact that they fulfill North American readers' expectations of what constitutes a female captivity narrative. In the tradition of the captivity genre, their stories are both racialized and eroticized. And I want to just make clear that I'm not taking issue with the truth of these authors' accounts of their brutalizing experiences in prison. Rather, I am trying to uh, point out that the recognizable genre of the, of the captivity narrative invokes a familiar threat, the vulnerability of young women in the face of powerful dominating men, often in a racialized context. Working within the generic tradition of colonial stories of captivity, Neymat's Prisoner of Tehran sets up a dichotomy between Neymat's own more civilized Christianity and the barbaric, in this case Muslim, worldview of her captors. Thus, the fictional tropes of the captivity narrative, which has Christian inflections, are familiar to Western readership and risk confirming, rather than contesting, generalized images of a threatening uh, Iran. In her memoir, Neymat details the conditions of her arrest and imprisonment at age 16 in Iran's notorious Evin prison. Neymat is tortured and sentenced to death, but is dramatically rescued moments before her ex uh, execution by her interrogator, who forces her to marry him. It's a sensational story in which her interrogator slash husband um, 
is soon murdered by his own colleagues uh, in Evin. But thanks to the help of her in-laws, Nemat is released and eventually escapes to Canada, settling and raising a family in Aurora, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto, Canada, where I live. In My Life as a Traitor, Zahra Qahramani, arrested at age 20 and held in Evin for participating in student protests, foregrounds her mother's Zoroastrian faith and positions herself as an exotic and pre-Islamic Persian princess. Camelia Intikhabi Farid is Muslim but takes pains early in the book to situate herself within a secular and westernized family. Thus, Nemat, Qahramani, and Intikhabi Farid write about Iran from minority positions. They foreground their minority religious status uh, and their secular, secular westernized position. All three emphasize their Persianness as opposed to the Muslimness reviled in the West. Nemat's, Qahramani's, and Intikhabi Farid's narratives are also highly eroticized following the trop tropic conventions of both the captivity genre and the Harlequin romance, which hinge on the anxieties that emerge in response to the sexual threat posed by the figure of an often swarthy man. All three texts work within a framework of heterosexualized power relations between the male captor and the female captive. The figure of the brutish lover won over by a diminutive, meek, young woman, conventional and popular romance, is a feature shared in both Camellia and Prisoner of Tehran, although Entechabifar presents herself in a more active role as her interrogator's seducer, while Nemat remains an unwilling and passive victim. What I'm suggesting is that this, the familiarity of the romance captivity narrative is what may account um, for, its wide, uh, for, for its wide appeal to Western readership. Indeed, Nemat has become a minor celebrity in Canada. It also accounts for the angry rejection of this narrative by some former Iranian political prisoners, many of whom now live in Canada or Europe. Although I have pointed to the recognizable fictional tropes within which Nemat, Entechabi Farz, and Gahramani's texts operate, my in intention, believe it or not, is not to dismiss their accounts of torture, imprisonment, and suffering. Rather, I'm interested in how certain life stories are told through the mobilization of recognizable generic conventions and the effects of the circulation of these texts. All three prison narratives compel a humanitarian response from the reader as witness. These narratives engender some kind of feeling in the reader that can be a socially and politically transformative response to another's traumatic experience. However, while this engendered compassion may have transformative political or personal potential, for the Western and Iranian reader of the prison memoir, we need also to bear in mind Lauren Berlant's claim that, and these are her words, compassion is a term denoting privilege. The sufferer is over there. The gap that opens up between the object of compassion and the compassionate subject is where expressions of humanitarianism are articulated, underscoring how feelings of compassion and humanitarianism are inextricably bound up with complex relations of power. The humanitarian response then actually demands less from us. We can express feelings of sorrow or pity regarding an isolated case without turning a self-reflexive critical eye towards the larger social and political system which creates inequalities and hierarchies, a system in which we may ourselves be complicit. Shahla Talibi's Ghosts of Revolution, published in 2011, is a prison memoir that operates in a different register than any of the ones previously discussed. Unlike the prison memoirs considered um, earlier, Talibi offers a historical contextualization of Iranian society and politics that does not lend itself 
to hastily drawn uh, conclusions about the country as a unilaterally brutal place. Rather than working within the limits of the genres of the captivity narrative or of the romance novel, Ghosts of Revolution can be described in terms of what John Beverly has termed the testimonio, which translates as testimony, the act of bearing witness to injustice. Talibi writes in graceful prose, intertwining her memories of suffering and torture in prison with those of her fellow inmates and of their collective efforts to keep themselves intact under the dehumanizing effects of torture. Talibi's memoir, an emotionally challenging read, is a story of defiance against oppression and a binding love between those who have suffered the unimaginable torments of political prisons. This is a powerful text that bears witness to the traumatic effects of torture and imprisonment in Iran and to, horror, and to the horror of the mass executions of 1988, during which thousands of political prisoners, including her own husband, were summarily killed and thrown into unmarked graves. Now a faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies at Arizona State University, Talibi's memoir engages with questions of torture and suffering through a deeply personal and complex theoretical lens. Indeed, Talibi's narrative works in deliberate and thoughtful ways as a challenge to Elaine Scarry's formulation of torture as language destroying. Her memoir is a poignant and deeply moving testimonial to both the cruelties and the generosities of human relationships. In response to the attempted destruction of her voice, Talibi offers a moving account of her experience in prison and as a victim of torture. Describing her reaction to the fate of some of her former cellmates who shortly after their release succumbed to the traumatic memories of torture and imprisonment by committing suicide or descending into madness, um, Talibi writes, oh, and I, f I forgot to show you these covers from, I'll just go, Camellia and, uh, and the other text I discussed. <clears throat> okay, so this is uh, a quote from uh, Talibi. I realized that I was not writing or dreaming about my experience, or more accurately, did not know what I was dreaming about, nor was I aware if I was even dreaming at all. It was a state of despair, a space of silence and lost voice. I was no longer even singing to myself as I used to. Horrified by this realization, I reluctantly began to write, and my writings were saturated with the ghosts of the dead and the spirits of the mad. Putting pen to paper, she expresses her voice and shares her memories alongside descriptions of her friends and cellmates, articulating a vision of humanity that conceives of human relationships as interdependent, stressing her belief that the well-being of oneself is necessarily dependent upon the well-being of others. Every chapter in Ghosts of Revolution incorporates stories of other people whose lives became inextricably intertwined with Talibi's own in prison and whose sufferings impressed themselves upon her memory. With sensitivity and empathy, Talebi traces and narrates the trajectory of each individual's life. In extreme cases, as in the, in the irrevocably damaged young Roya, who has removed herself cognitively and emotionally from her immediate surroundings, Talebi and her fellow prisoners hypothesize about her life before prison. Speculating about her middle-class background, Talebi fleshes out Roya's pre-prison life thus offering her in the fullness of generosity and even without her awareness, memories of happiness, love and security, a time before prison and before torture. Throughout her memoir, Talibi offers moving descriptions of her inmates, even humanizing a particularly despised recanter, Fozi, 
um, by contextualizing her story through a sympathetic um, framework. Um, that that uh, by, uh, by contextualizing her story through the sympathetic framework, uh, she challenges Scary's claim um, that I mentioned earlier um, when Scary said, our capacity to imagine other people is very small. Talibi intertwines these descriptions of others' lives into, uh, with memories of her own past, of her family, and of her husband, who was executed in 1988. In Ghosts of Revolution, Talebi puts forward a vision of the individual as always already contingent on another. In an example, uh, Talebi relates the story of Sudi and Behruz, who were subjected to torture in the same chamber. <clears throat> as related by Sudi, even in the extremities of pain, Behruz was full of love and empathy for her suffering and gave her the tools with which to survive, even as he knew his own death under torture was inevitable. Thus, Talibi's memoir as testimonial makes claims on the reader to respond to narratives of suffering in ethically and politically responsible ways. But it also places stress on the modern conception of the individual as self-contained and autonomous. What her memoir draws our attention to is our collective responsibility to be empathetic, to care for others, and to bear witness to suffering. As Talibi relates her visceral account of pain and torture, she writes also of resilience and of the possibility of retaining one's humanity, one's ability to feel empathy, even in the most brutal of conditions. Ghosts of Revolution is about the resilience of ordinary people in dehumanizing and degrading conditions. It is also, uncomfortably, the story of the evils committed by ordinary people in ordinary circumstances such as her recounting of her memories of the torture and suffering inflicted on the village dog by a group of boys when she was a child, or of the pleasure with which her teachers inflicted corporeal punishment on nonconformist students. <coughs> Talibi interweaves her memories of the torture to which she and others were subjected to in prison with her childhood memories of the physical and emotional suffering inflicted by other children on their peers. A particularly disturbing episode for her family involved a group of young men who tormented and terrorized her good-natured but slow-witted cousin, Youssef, by tossing him into a fast-moving river in the full knowledge that he did not know how to swim. Gulping the water, frozen and paralyzed, he stared at death spreading over him. His last look at the world he knew till then was at the devilish expressions in his friends' eyes and their grinning faces enjoying themselves at his expense. This time of eternity for Youssef was also the moment of exceeding pleasure for his co-workers, an instant during which Youssef crossed the line to the world of the absolute other. Drawing comparisons between this instance of group violence and the mass prison killings in 1988, she writes, the way that everyone seemed to have played a part in drawing Youssef to his final destination reminds me of the massacre of political prisoners in the summer of 1988. The prison officials pursued a policy of having everyone's hands in the system covered with prisoners' blood. It was to keep everyone silent about the massacre, for if they spoke, the secret of their own role in the crime would be revealed. Talibi's memoir thus extends a significant challenge to readers. It requires us to self-reflect in ways that can be deeply uncomfortable, asking us to imagine not only the suffering of others when they are at a safe remove, but also to reflect on the disturbing affinities between the cruelties to which human beings subject each, other, <clears throat> subject, subject each other in their quotidian lives, with the torture and betrayal of friends and cellmates in a heightened, harrowing context such as prison. 
Tolebi's memoir then compels us to contemplate and acknowledge in profoundly unsettling ways the limits of our own humanity. Thinking about memoir as a genre that generates feelings of empathy for the suffering of another and as a mode of expression that humanizes another affords us an understanding of the prison memoir, memoir both as a testimonial that bears witness against injustice and as a humanitarian narrative that demands of us to rethink our conceptions of ourselves as self-contained individuals. The prison memoir places stress on our ability to feel empathy and challenges us to articulate an uncompromising commitment to an ideal of human rights that is inclusive of all. I'd like to end now by circling back to where I began, to a consideration of how diasporic life narratives place memory and testimony at the heart of their stories. As readers, we're placed in the role of witness to narratives of historical injustices and atrocities. By opening ourselves up to these often traumatic stories, we allow ourselves to be touched by the experiences of others. Once we are touched by their narratives, we can no longer look away or unlearn what we have come to know. The potential of this moment offers, I believe, a glimmer of hope. How do these stories impress themselves upon us, and what do they demand of us as readers? What will we choose to do with the stories that we read? Thank you. Thank you, so I'm happy to take questions. Yes? Uh, first of all, thank you very much. Um, I was curious as to your thoughts on, it seems most of these works, memoirs, are about women. Mm -hmm. Is it that men are not writing them, or are publishers favoring female stories in order to kind of perpetuate, or to feed into that pre-existing notion of the suffering, Middle Eastern woman mm -hmm. suffering? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because um, something has changed recently. There are more men publishing memoirs now, to prison memoirs and all, all kinds of memoirs. Um, but it's true that when you know this this uh, diasporic memoir boom, if we want to talk about it, was really predominantly um, written by women, um, and I think that there there are a number of things there. Um, I think that partly, yes, if we want to be cynical, I think it's publishers were uh, keenly interested in, uh, in, uh, in finding stories by, you know, oppressed, uh, or, you know, oppressed Muslim women to, uh, to market, right? Um, and um, so I think that was part of it. Um, but um, I also think that there's something, for me it's really interesting that um, the genre of autobiography was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that you know, and uh, other scholars like Farzan Milani have written about this, that um, the genre of autobiography was, you know, really not very popular, particularly for women in the Iranian context. So what happens in the diaspora? You know, so there seems to be this moment, um, 20 years after the revolution, when women um, all of a sudden feel the um, the need or the drive. Um, to write, you know, and to tell their stories. And I think that um, there is um, almost a, a possibility there being outside of the country of origin and writing in English and not in Farsi, right? Um, 
there's a, it's almost like it, pro it offers some leeway. Um, Roya Hakokion has written about this in her memoir. Um, the, and I've completely forgotten the name of it, but uh, I'm sure somebody here will know. But anyways, Roya Hakokion. And uh, she writes about how she would never have been able to write that story in Farsi. It felt too close. And there are certainly cult certain cultural codes around gender and modesty and so on that I think um, would prevent some women from writing um, in Farsi anyway. Yeah. So it's not fully formed, but these are some of my thoughts around it. Yes, thank you. So, uh, you know, the title of your talk, Nostalgia and Human Rights, uh, the nostalgia part of it, I do get. The human rights part, I really don't get. Because nostalgia is something that's universally sensed by immigrant communities. And, and, and I think that to the extent that they're written for non-natives, that they're not for the diaspora, is of interest. Otherwise, reading something about your own thoughts and shared experiences. I, I don't know how much of the market there is for that, actually common But the human rights part of it uh, appears to me to be, you know, as a follow-up to your question, to be feeding into a narrative that is well established in terms of how the primary readers of these books that are not Iranian uh, would, would find interesting and reaffirming the, the perceptions that they have of post-revolutionary mm -hmm. uh, So, So really, one of the motivations for these writers to, to write, and that's, the, that's really a question mark which I genuinely ask. I'm not trying mm -hmm. to make a statement. Yeah, but, yeah. but generally, what are their motivations in writing these things to sort of reaffirm mm -hmm. what people already understand and many people of the diaspora find very painful to even consider reading. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for your question. Um, I think um, that, and so there, you had a few things in there, so if I've missed something, please sure. bring me back to it. Um, so I'm trying to think about where to start. First, let's talk about audience, right? Because I actually am not sure that these texts I'd have to disagree that, that these texts are written for primarily a non-Iranian audience. I think they're written for, you know, sure, a Western audience, but also for a specifically diasporic audience. For example, and, and you know, there's such a, um, uh, there are so many books um, that uh, I think it's difficult to lump them all into one category, which is why when I spoke about prison narratives, I actually didn't just want to talk about Talebi, that is my favorite book, obviously, as was probably evident. Um, but I did want to sort of show the nuances that, yes, there are some narratives like Prisoner of Tehran uh, that fall into this uh, category that offers the Western reader what they already know, right, um, about, about Iran. Um, but what do you do with a text like Talebis? That's actually quite nuanced, extremely complex, very difficult to, to read. Um, and um, there are, I think, more and more texts like that. The, I think that the, uh, these diasporic stories are not just telling us what we already know as diasporic subjects. In fact, I think they're, they're telling stories that a lot of people identify with in a very powerful way. 
for example, the Tora Bahrampur, um, although there are different generations, but let's think about the people of the same generation, Tara Bahrampur and Satyapi, for instance. They were both about 10 or so when the revolution happened. And I have to say from, you know, the, uh, and so they're speaking from as, um, as, uh, as uh, they experienced the revolution, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, they're sort of on the margins, right? They watched it happening. And it was, even so, I mean, I think there's a kind of um, a perception that, well, kids aren't really affected by things, you know, when they'll kind of get over it. And I think what these stories are actually showing is that, uh, no, the, the experience of the revolution was very much at the heart of their experiences, right, as children. And um, trauma works this way, trauma works belatedly, right? So it took 20 years after the revolution for these narratives to start coming out. And I think this is a, an, a, a great example of um, how trauma works belatedly, the working through of trauma, right? Um, these stories are, it's almost therapeutic. And uh, there's a term, you know, the uh, Suzette Henke uses the term scriptotherapy, sort of writing as a therapeutic process. And I think that um, some of these texts really fit that mold. The kind of working through of the, uh, working through um, those difficult experiences of revolution, whether uh, they were children or whether they were actually actively part participating on the streets. Um, and, then, um, and then that uh, generation, Moavenese generation, who sort of inherits this nostalgia, now there's a whole generation of kids like that who've never set foot in Iran, but who feel this kind of uh, connection to Iran and feel nostalgic for certain aspects of Iranian culture only because they get it from their, their parents. And I think seeing themselves in literature uh, in this way, reflected in this way, is actually quite a powerful <coughs> experience. So all this to say that I don't think they are reaffirming, these stories are reaffirming what a Western audience necessarily hears, uh, wants to hear. Um, I think that the narratives are a lot uh, more uh, nuanced than, than, might, uh, than we might think, actually. Um, in terms of the human rights um, 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 piece, um, I guess I'm interested in what Shahda Talibi is doing. Right? That she's, uh, and you know, I'm an English studies scholar, so I'm interested in stories right? and what stories can do. And I think that the telling and the retelling of stories, passing stories down through generations, is um, a very powerful thing, a very important way of, um, and I don't want to make a reductive statement here by saying, if we tell the stories, there will be no more atrocities, right? Um, that's not what I'm trying to say, but I do believe that hearing uh, stories of, um, of, you know, the kinds of atrocities that took place, um, and hearing about other people's experiences, traumatic experiences, really allowing ourselves to be, to open ourselves up to those experiences, allowing ourselves to be affected by that, by these stories, creates space for empathy. And that's what, I mean, what else can we do other than feel empathetic, put ourselves in the place of others, 
Um, and to me, that is a key element of um, social justice, right? Recognizing the familiarity, the sameness of others, rather than um, seeing them at a, as a di at a distance, seeing them as alien and other, right? Um, hearing each other's stories and letting ourselves be affected by them, I think, um, uh, helps shrink our world a little bit, right? I mean, I'm not sure if that is uh, addresses some of the things that you're saying. I, you know. You I, I will ask a follow-up question after Okay, that. all right, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, have you noticed that that generation were participating in revolution, were young and involved, whether they were actively political or not, uh, but they remember they were adults? Have you noticed that they, there is a, there's not as much work, or in, either in the form of autobiography, or memoir, or even you know, um, storytelling literature? Yeah. Uh, have you noticed that? Uh, to me, not doing any research, um, I, there's a huge gap, but I don't know. Since you've done your research, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you have more than such a gap. And if you do, uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts about that? What is the reason? I can guess. Mm -hmm. I have some ideas, mm -hmm. but <coughs> I'm very interested to know uh, what is your mm -hmm. thoughts about why. Are you talking about the? I, I didn't understand the question. The gap between the generation who were um, younger, who were older during the revolution, participated in the revolution. Um, like, unlike Marjan Sartopi, she was like about 10 years old, if yeah. you remember. Yeah. Um, affected, as you said, it, her friend, mm -hmm. affected by the revolution, but they were children, right? But those people who were 20 years old, 25 years old. Mm -hmm. um, to me, the, they haven't done enough, considering the fact that they've been through a lot. They haven't done enough work to express, mm -hmm. to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to say. Mm -hmm. and that's my, yeah. you know, yeah, but I was wondering if yeah. you noticed something like yeah. There are more um, memoirs, it's true, by the younger generation. I think that's partly a language issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think also that there are different, I mean, there's Nohid Persson Sarvesani, who's a documentary filmmaker, and uh, she made a um, documentary film recently. I wrote about it in my book, and I'm terrible with titles, so it's gone, gone out of my head. I think it's called um, My Lost Revolution, something like that. I can't remember. Um, and um, so she actually... Uh, she's made a number of documentaries. It took her a long time. Actually, it's really interesting because she made the documentary The Queen and I. I don't know if you've seen that, right? And it was interesting because I think it was in discussion with Fada in that kind of bizarre relationship that they ended up, you know, kind of um, a forging, right? That um, she's at a, there are a couple of moments in the documentary where she starts talking about her brother who was executed. When they go to Farah's uh, daughter's, um, Leila Pahlavi's um, 
um, grave. Um, there's this moment where the two of them, actually two very different peoples, we have Farah and a former communist, right, who kind of um, have this emotional connection because of their shared grief and mourning, right? So she starts talking about her brother and says, I've been thinking about my brother who was executed in the 80s and how guilty she felt because it was her younger brother and she had brought him into um, this, uh, she had encouraged him to join the group. Uh, and then she managed to flee the country, but he was executed, right? So it was interesting because it was in that documentary, you can kind of see it, like that she's kind of working through all of a sudden. And she said, for 20 years, I blocked this out of my mind. And that, again, is how trauma works, the blocking it out, just not thinking about it. And uh, the trigger almost was this connection with Farah. The next documentary she made was about her brother. And it's actually a really fascinating documentary. And it's quite, I find, problematic in a number of ways. But anyway, so she is one person who did do that work. There are others who I think have written some things in Farsi. But, I, um, but there's a lot of kind of, uh, there are a lot of disconnected narratives. There are little pieces here and there. There were a lot of responses to Marina Nehmat's Prisoner of Tehran. You're probably familiar with the, the, there was incredible outrage by uh, former political prisoners in response to her narrative. And their um, narratives were kind of piecemeal. They um, showed up on websites here and there um, in, in fragments, right? And I think, again, it uh, kind of uh, illustrates um, how trauma works, right? It's kind of not fully articulated. Um, so, um, maybe uh, that'll change, but I also think um, the uh, again the not having facility with the English language might be another uh, reason why. Language and trauma that was on my list. Mm -hmm. How about the uh, fact that culturally, Iranian culture, we don't. Uh, have that, uh, we don't value memoir or we don't take yeah. it seriously yeah. as much as in Western culture. Yeah. That, be a factor? Mm -hmm. that could be a factor, although I think it was the same in, in the West, right? As you know, with the, the quote I, I uh, showed you at the beginning by Thomas Kauser's, where he was talking about that difference between memoir and autobiography. Memoir has always been seen as the lesser genre, right? It's actually quite gendered, usually, you know, by women, and it's usually kind of focused on an event and something that happened rather than like somebody's, you know, like Churchill's autobiography. That's kind of seen as respectable, right? But, you know, the, someone's memoir from, you know, whatever their experiences doing whatever, you know, uh, it's just not valued uh, in that way. So I think that's kind of cross-cultural, yeah. But I also think it's changing with this memoir boom, you know, there, there, there's certainly a readership for it. People want to read memoirs. Yeah, I think Dr. Milani. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> I, I, I don't know how to articulate it, but <coughs> uh, to consider, for example, Talibi's book, The Prison Memoir, mm -hmm. and put it in the same category with Woman and Match, mm -hmm. in my view, uh, is combining uh, apples and uh, mm -hmm. oranges. Woman yeah. yeah. and Match relishes in his brief arrest, knowing at all times he was going to get out because yeah. CBS is after him and he's got his cousin in the president's mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. This is a woman who suffered a 
was at the verge of death. Yeah. This is a genuine prison memoir. Yeah. The other one is a commodity. Yeah. And to call them both a prison memoir, sort of, I, 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 I don't know. I, I know mm -hmm. yeah. there's no other name for it. Yeah. But, uh, no, uh, actually, um, perhaps I uh, misspoke because I actually don't. I don't even talk about him in my book, but mm -hmm. I didn't mean to call it a prison memoir. I wasn't. I wasn't putting him in that category. Um, the just. Me, I just mentioned him as an aside, really, as just part of a group of journalists who have felt compelled to return, right, through this kind of siren call of nostalgia, and then had to turn around and leave again really quickly. But do they return for nostalgia or is it their job? I mean, he goes no, no, he, no, 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 he w did, wasn't working when he was there. Um, he took a one-year um, sort of sabbatical um, from his job. He very ex expressly did not work there as a journalist. He wanted to go there for one year. He worked as a translator. Did he? Okay. Yes, for his okay. Uh, relative, famous relative, the president. Okay. And that becomes right, the right, badge right. of honor for the text. Right. And then he goes back, and then he writes another memoir that very much traffics in yeah. the idea yeah. that I was the translator. I mean, uh, I don't mind yeah. that, yeah. but it's very different than Talib. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a heart-wrenching uh, story of despair and uh, ritual death. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I certainly wasn't putting them on the same, you know, in the same category at all. I was just trying to show you a range of memoirs in these 40 minutes, you know, just because they're all very, very different. In fact, it's really difficult to talk about this alongside even Satyapi. I mean, they're totally different memoirs, right? But I was just trying to give you an overview of um, the different categories, the different genres. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, thank you. I think so. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Sorry. I forgot which direction. Yes. How living in a Western culture for these for several years might have affect, affected what they originally experienced. How can we make sure that what's written there is what they have what they have originally experienced? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And actually, the term memoir uh, comes from the word memory, right? And so um, there is, um, and I think memoirists, if they're genuine. Uh, a, and honest about it, will say that, you know, yeah, I'm working with memory, which is a notoriously unreliable faculty, right? So, and I think that that is the difference maybe between sort of the perception that some readers of memoir have and what memoirists themselves are seeing. Memoirists are telling a story. It doesn't have to be the truth, you know, and there is no such thing as, I mean, I know I'm sounding like a pro-structuralist right now, which I am. So, you know, there is no such thing as the truth. I mean, I'm going to, you know, uh, in like the story that I tell today about whatever, the breakfast that I ate is going to change a little bit tomorrow, right? Um, because I might forget a, sm a small detail. That doesn't mean that I'm lying. It's just how memory works, right? Memory is unreliable. So I think we have to step away from this idea that um, memory, uh, uh, that memoir uh, has to um, um, sort of deliver this kind of unad unadulterated truth um, to to us, I think we should just sort of step back and read it as a story. Just like we don't have these expectations of fiction, right? We put so much pressure on writers of memoirs, 
And um, I think the expectation is that, like for example, a theorist of autobiography, Philippe Lejeune, talks about the, um, the contract, right, the autobiographical pact between the writer and the reader. As long as there's an element of truth, right, that's what you have to kind of, there should be some truth in it, right? But you can't expect that every single detail, a smell that is described, that the author remembered from when she was four, you know, is obviously not necessarily going to be precisely the way it happened, right? So, I mean, and I don't have a problem with that, but I know some people feel very strongly about the truth of the memoir, you know? As long as the main details are, you know, correct, you know, as long as, you know, the person actually was in jail and wasn't pretending to, you know, was, um, then it doesn't really bother me, you know? It's a story. And I think there was here, and then and then we'll go back there. Sorry. Um, you mentioned well, of course, I understand that the title of your talk is about memoir. Uh, you em you emphasize the fact that the reader connects with what is going on in the memoir and feels yeah. empathy. Mm -hmm. But I would like to kind of disagree with that. I always personally, I think that memoir doesn't have that kind of a, uh, effect on the readership. Because it is always there's always the chance that the reader might think that okay this is happening to somebody else in the other part of the world and I feel sorry about it I feel sorry for this person and what happened to this person but it's not gonna happen to me and after a few days or months mm -hmm. I might forget about what was going on mm -hmm. but I want to um, I'm curious to know your um, opinion on the the difference between memoir and fiction don't you think that fiction Although it is, it might be on, based on what, real things or unreal things, it has more effect than telling a story. The readership can connect with whatever the, the, the writer is telling us, wherever the writer is coming from. Uh, you might read a fiction from any parts of Africa or any parts of Asia, and you feel, you feel connected to that person, to them to the narrative first and to the characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But memoir always brings that divide between the reader and the hmm. uh, That's really interesting. I, I wonder why Why do you think that is? Because I, I don't... Writer, so uh -huh, okay, I'm a fiction writer. But seriously, I, yeah. I, I always mm -hmm. thought that uh, fiction has more effect. Mm -hmm. It brings emotions in the reader that mm -hmm. might not even be familiar with. I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on what genre you like, right? Mm -hmm. What, you know, um, I do see that, um, I find it interesting that in uh, generally, this generalization now, but I found overall the Iranian community has not reacted well to the memoirs. And I, I find that interesting. We're so hung up on the capital T truth of, and maybe it's because everybody, um, feel so invested in um, the story of Iran that is told in the West, right? Um, and uh, so people get very angry about how a certain event was described. Um, and, um, and I find that curious, you know? I think it's just a general, um, um, and, and, you know, a, a general hostility to the genre, you know? Um, but Pardon? I don't. I don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, I think 
but not that it's, I'm not, you know, like, it, it, I find that interesting, you know, because why is that? Is it because so much of, you know, Iranian culture is vilified in the Western, you know, context that people just are so invested in having, you know, one narrative, you know, about Iran? I, I just, I don't know. Um, one thing I can add, it doesn't help the, the discussion, but uh, even in fiction, I always think that using the uh, pronoun I yeah. makes that separation. Really? Okay. You don't think it actually draws people in more? Uh, again, it, yeah. it, it might draw the, the yeah. person in, but um, it's like, as I said, it's happening to somebody else. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. That's my okay. But you know, in America, that's not true. Yeah. This might be your experience. There is actually a case where a woman publishes a fiction uh, called The Kiss. It sells a few thousand copies. Then she republishes virtually the same and calls it a memoir. It's a memoir of her relationship with her father. And it becomes an absolute yeah. bestseller. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is a culture of uh, opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It is the culture of yeah. confession, the yeah. culture of reality TV. Yeah. So if you render it in fiction, it is often much more, particularly in America today. Yeah. Um, I mean that is a very famous case. Thank you. Uh, so this gentleman sure. is waiting, and then I'll come back. So I'm actually glad that I waited to to have the follow-up because okay. it, it's very much in line with what was said, and it really goes back to my original point about who the target audience mm -hmm. is, because I don't think Iranians, and, you know, you throw things at me, I don't think Iranians are necessarily avid readers. The medium of reading a book is really not the medium by which uh, it's not what? we, I'm sorry. What was the last word? The, the medium by, it's, we're not avid readers, and the medium of the book is not a medium that, that we see to experience and to create empathy for others. Uh, I, I'm from a religious minority, and I, and I really don't see any, any works out there. And, and in a way, I don't think it, it would have been very effective if creating empathy would, was to be uh, uh, created through informing by writing. I think, uh, in general, we, are, we, we seek other means to get our information, and you're absolutely right, our perception of truth, our own version of truth, becomes a barrier to, to exploring other uh, alternative facts, as the term is. <laughs> so, so in that regard, I, I, I'm still, despite the fact that I appreciate the points that you made earlier, um, it's hard for me to imagine these works to have been created and written with the motivation that they would be read by the diaspora. Uh, the language in which it's written for the generation that, that um, I'm from, many of them really do not be um, mm -hmm. at ease in reading it. Mm -hmm. And the younger generation, uh, their association with the, so the culture of their parents, mm -hmm. uh, I really wonder, again, amongst Iranians, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I'm just not sure, and, and I don't know what data is there to support it. That in fact the the prints, the number of editions of these books that are printed, um, uh, to what extent they are being bought up and, and mm -hmm. consumed by the diaspora. I don't know if there's data for that, mm -hmm. but I, I just don't think book sales are 
mm -hmm. are, are really uh, an indicator of our interests as a community? Well, I don't even know if we can talk about an Iranian community. I mean, how can we do that? We are an incredibly diverse community and... Uh, with some and common traits. Pardon me? With some common traits. Sure, with some common traits, right? But I mean, to, I think, with all due respect, I mean, to say categorically that Iranians don't read, it makes, you know, I'm depressed when I hear that. <laughs> don't say that to me. Um, and um, also, I mean, having, um, I see all the time because, you know, I serve as uh, external sometimes on dissertation defenses. I've already, you know, there are all these dissertations on diasporic writing. Yeah, uh, I go to Iranian studies conferences. We have panels on diasporic writing. People are reading uh, these texts. Uh, Iranian, diasporic Iranian scholars are reading them. They're writing about them. They're, they're writing the scholars. That's what I'm trying to say. They're the scholars. Those are the exceptions. They're in the business of reading these things. I mean, we're talking about millions of Iranians. Yeah. And yes, when you go to these yeah. conferences, particularly you go into these conferences, it's, a, it's really a very tiny yeah. slice of that community. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess we'll have to, yeah, you know, right. disagree on this one, right? Because uh, I don't have the data to support that, and exactly. I don't think you do either, right? So, um, but I'd like to think that more people are reading than, than you think. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to think that anyway. And you and Emma. Yeah. I'm just going to add uh, something uh, to what the children was saying, that uh, back to the question of the cultural need, uh, maybe um, I'm still thinking about the older generation, mm -hmm. why they don't mm -hmm. write memoir, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking uh, part of it, besides language and uh, trauma, mm -hmm. which is, I think trauma is more important mm -hmm. than language, mm -hmm. the fact that we, we were raised to not think of ourselves as I. Yeah, yeah. But it is very much American culture, Western culture, mm -hmm. Canadian culture probably, they're comfortable with that. Yeah. And as you said, when you read a memoir, it is well understood in this culture that that's your perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but in our culture, at least the, you know, my generation growing up, it was uh, considered as being arrogant yeah. to talk about I and using the I. Yeah. So I think there's something, not, yeah. I don't want to say it's good or bad, yeah, yeah, but I yeah. just have a sense, uh, yeah. feeling that there's something about Iranian culture, <coughs> the memoir, writing memoir, <coughs> is not very yeah. um, accepted or popular yet. Mm -hmm. I hope yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, that uh, that this, you know, the genre is about self-disclosure, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it, and I, again, I mean, traditionally has not been a very popular genre, but <coughs> it has simply exploded. I mean, I, I could kind of itemize like the list of books. I mean, the, uh, you're probably familiar with them. all you have to do is Google search, you know. There are tons of memoirs now. Um, but um, uh, so I think that's changing. I think people are uh, writing about themselves, but it's taken a long time, you know. Yeah. So. Yes. Um, so I thought that your description of autobiography and memoir as being a metaphorical unveiling was particularly apt when you were talking about it. Um, but as, as you were going through your, your uh, presentation, I, I started thinking about it also sort of a metaphorical, like the act of writing the memoir is not only a self-unveiling, but it's an unveiling if you consider like the veil as the nostalgia of kind of the culture that was lost. 
And so I was just thinking that with um, the point about how it's not being really particularly well received, I feel like perhaps the, the rest of the diaspora is not ready to do that unveiling and, and kind of accept it. So I, I just. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, that, um, that, I mean, that it's so fraught, right? Is this what, do I understand mm -hmm. that correctly, right? That uh, um, I think that, um, I think to a certain extent there's uh, discomfort with, uh, I mean, even now, I mean, if you have a few Iranians in a room and they just want to uh, talk about, just for example, I was actually expecting a question about the 1988 uh, you know, massacres or something. If you get a few runs in a room about that, they'll be at each other's throats, right, with their own versions of, of um, what happened. And so I, um, I think you're right, that there's so many, so many disagreements. I mean, perhaps we're not at that point yet where we're just comfortable with hearing that person's version. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Thank you. The question of unveiling is always a good point to end the discussion. <laughs> Thank you yeah. very, very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Your book, please avail yourself. And she has promised to sign something, yes, right? Of course. <laughs> Should I just unplug this? Yeah, sure, that's good. Oh, stuck here. Thank you. Thank you very much.